Well, brothers and sisters, you may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it is a joy and a delight to be with you. Uh, Don't let the kids running off uh, make you think that they don't want to hear the word. They are going to hear the word in Huptown Kids, so I really don't even need to give these instructions. Blue Station, you are going exit right following Miss Micah, and Gray Station, you are exit left uh, following uh, Mr. Johnny and Miss Cassidy. Our kids this morning are going to be learning and reflecting, reflecting upon a truth that all of us need to be reflecting upon, which is that God is truthful. God defines what truth is, and he is incapable of falsehood. God is truthful. As I walked up the steps of the Jefferson County Magistrate Court, only one thought went through my mind. I am guilty. I had no clever argument to make. There was no get-out-of-jail-free card. There was no plausible way I could have the judge look at the evidence that was before him by the prosecutor, who frankly had an absolutely airtight case, and then spin my words cleverly and intelligently and, uh, dare I say, skillfully, to convince this judge, this magistrate, that I was innocent. There was only one verdict. Guilty. Standing in the courtroom, overwhelmed and terrified, I realized how I did not have the ability or the knowledge or the strength to be my own advocate. What I needed was an advocate outside of myself, someone who could speak on my behalf, who could use their expertise and their skill in the courtroom to ensure that I would not face the punishment I rightly deserved to face. But where would I find someone like this? I certainly couldn't afford one, and I was out of time because the magistrate was there sitting before me. And then suddenly, I saw a friend in the courtroom who looked at me with surprise. What are you doing here? She asked me. Well, I was uh, caught speeding in my mom's car. And it was one of those cars that looked like the warlord's car that, you know, in the action movies where they're driving through the desert marketplace and they're throwing the bodies into the trunk. I was speeding in one of those cars. But it wasn't just speeding. The inspection had expired. Uh, My car insurance apparently had lapsed months ago. The little tags on the license plate had expired. The registration was also expired. Um, and embarrassingly, I said, and my license has been dead. But other than the speeding, I wasn't aware of any of these other offenses that I was guilty of. Fear ran through my mind. Legs trembling, hands shaking, voice cracking, which is really embarrassing when, you know, you're supposed to be a grown man. But she looked at me kindly and said, Hang on a sec. She walked over to the prosecutor's side, and all I could see was her smile at the prosecutor, uh, speak inaudibly. I couldn't hear what she was saying. She waved her hand, and then a minute later, she walked over to me saying, you're going to be fine. I looked at her with shock, and then I heard the magistrate's voice boom through the chamber saying, you can leave. I was absolutely stunned. What in the world just happened? 
I walked in guilty, and the verdict was innocent. I knew I certainly did not deserve this verdict. And yet, outside of myself, I found an advocate before the magistrate in this court. It's kind of a silly example of our need for an advocate, but friends, I still remain in need of a great advocate. And so do you. So turn with me now to the book of 1 John. We'll be in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. If you're new to reading the Bible, 1 John is found towards the end of the New Testament. You can literally just flip to the back of the Bible and flip over a few pages. Uh, 1 John uh, is before 2 and 3 John. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be looking at the first six verses in chapter 2. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read, or you can follow along on the screens. They'll be behind me here. If you don't have a Bible, there are the Black Pew Bibles there. You can flip over to page 1,210, and if you need a Bible that you can read and understand, consider that as our gift to you. While you're flipping to that, I just want to quickly recap kind of where we've been over uh, this intermittent series through this letter of 1 John. This brief five-chapter letter was written by the Apostle John in the early first century. And scholars understand that the Apostle John was literally and in terms of as a church officer, was an elder. He was an elderly man when he wrote this letter, and he wrote this letter as a response to the rise of an early form of a false teaching, a false teaching known as Gnosticism. The false teaching had crept into the church, and this specific false teaching claimed that salvation, true salvation, could only be found through a special and hidden knowledge deep within oneself. And these false teachers that came in convinced these Christians to leave and abandon the faith to find this special hidden knowledge that only these false teachers claimed they had. And so the churches in Asia Minor saw a mass exodus and brothers and sisters who once sat beside them hearing the word of God preached were now no longer to be found. But the elder John, he wrote this letter to reaffirm to the churches the core of Christianity, the core of the person and the work of Jesus, and the outflow of our faith as we uh, hold to sound doctrine and exhibit obedience to God's word by walking in the light and to love each other that characterizes true Christians. And so this work is a work of both pastoral and fatherly care. If you remember several, several weeks ago when we were in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, the apostle listed three specific claims by these false teachers. So these claims actually expose themselves as being unregenerate. These are false teachers. They are not true Christians. They should not be trusted. So first, in verse 6, they profess to have fellowship with God, and yet they openly walk in darkness. They claimed, as John says in verse 8, that they denied that they were stained with the guilt of sin. John specifically says this is proof that they deceive themselves. Thereby, they deceive the listeners. Then in verse 10, they deny that sin manifests itself in their conduct, which is to make God a liar. So John, very clearly, out of the gate, says, listen, 
Believe me when I tell you the message we first heard and we proclaim to you. He says, I was there. I saw him. I touched him. I ate with him. I, I, I was there with him. I received the message from him. And you can trust me when I give you this proclamation. Don't believe those false teachers. Believe in the message that you have already received. He goes on in verses 8 and 9 in the first chapter to say that the genuine Christian, unlike these false teachers, they walk in the light. And they confess the reality of sin and guilt with a view to forgiveness from a just and faithful God. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, here's where we pick up this morning. You can follow along as I read the word of our God today. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. The main idea from this brief uh, six verses is simply this. If you reflect upon anything, if you take anything home today, it's this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So as we unpack these verses, I'm going to give you four questions to consider from this passage. So if you're a sermon note taker, I try to keep you in mind while I outline my sermon. Four questions. What do we need? What do we have? What has he done? And what do we do? Doesn't sound very glamorous. Doesn't sound very creative. Doesn't sound very um, complex. But really, four simple questions. What do we need? What do we have? What has he done? What do we do? These brief six verses answers these four questions completely and thoroughly. So let's look at our first question. What do we need? Verse 1. First half of verse 1, really. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Have you considered here John's fatherly tone? He says, My little children. There's nothing in the linguistics and the tone of John's writing that seems to indicate that as a father, he was annoyed that these Christians were sinning or that these Christians were tempted to abandon the faith. He doesn't sound irritable. He doesn't sound impatient. He doesn't sound cranky or curmudgeon-y. He doesn't sound like a man who is just fed up and tired of these Christians who just can't seem to get their acts together, who are so quick to uh, believe any other false teaching that creeps right in. He says, my little children. There's a fatherly possessiveness here. He says, my little children. You are my children. He extends his care and his concern over the churches by saying, you're, you're mine. I am with you. I am responsible for you. I care for you. You are my little children. How often do we look at our own kids and say, look, neighbor's kid, 
No, no, no. When our kid falls and stumbles and hurts themselves or when they're hungry and they just need an extra bite to eat even though they didn't eat their dinner right before bed, we look at them, sometimes maybe with a little bit of annoyance, but we look at them with pity and with concern. We recognize that if they go to bed hungry, they're probably not going to sleep well, which means that we're not going to sleep well, but the real deeper concern is they're not going to rest well. We have a concern for them. He says, my little children... He's not speaking condescendingly like saying, my little Christians, you still don't understand. No, he's got a fatherly tone, a fatherly concern. Dads, look at John as an example. If you're tempted to snap at your kids and be impatient with them, look at how John speaks to these churches. He's not impatient. He doesn't snap. He's not a curmudgeon. He's a sweet old man who loves these churches. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is a labor of love. This is a labor of care and fatherly love for the churches. He wants these churches to understand that there is a way for them to live now that they are in Christ, which is to walk in the light. And what's interesting is when you read the full first verse, there seems to be two potential attitudes that John is addressing. He anticipates his listeners probably have one of these two attitudes. Number one is probably too lenient of an attitude towards sin. And the second attitude, as we'll see in a moment, is too harsh of an attitude. Right, so too lenient, I can just go ahead and do whatever I want because God is gracious and he's forgiven me. And then number two is too harsh. There's no forgiveness for me if I sin. John seems to walk this middle road, this balanced line, rejecting or addressing both of these concerns. So, what do we need? John clearly indicates that we need to not sin. He, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The implied uh, idea here is that we need to not sin. you got to remember that the false teachers that were uh, influencing these churches, they claimed that they did not sin, they had no stain of sin, they had no guilt for sin, that sin was not something that they ought to be concerned with because they were free from sin. But the apostle clearly rejects that, even if he doesn't explicitly say that in this one verse. He, he rejects this claim, and he says that these things and all the things that are to follow in this letter were written to help the churches to walk in the light as God is in the light. So whereas his opponents were claiming everyone had free reign to live however they pleased, with no concern for moral restraint, John urged his little children to walk in the light. There's a better path forward for his little children to walk which is ultimately the best for them. And like a good father, he's instructing his kids to go in the path that is ultimately the best, not the path that leads to darkness and danger. That's what a good father does. He pours his life out for the flourishing and the well-being of his children. So what do we need? It's very clear. We need to not sin. We need to be very careful. We need to walk with Christian wisdom with spirit-filled prudence to abstain from sin and to walk the path of righteousness and holiness. There's a second question to consider. Again, in verse 1, what do we have? 
So if we need to not sin, what then do we have? John goes on. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is one of the most poignant verses, I think, in all of Scripture. The, 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 the passage is just pregnant with hope and encouragement and assurance for the Christian. He, he says, look, if, but if anyone does sin, it, there, there seems to be an implication or this implied understanding that, which, which really is we're all going to sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So ask yourself, in this passage, who is John speaking to? He's speaking to Christians. He understands the reality that Christians are going to sin. And in our struggle and fight against sin and our flesh, John gives us the word we need. You know, maybe uh, you've been a Christian for some time and, and, and you look back in your Christian walk and you think, you know, I thought the Christian walk was going to be easier. I thought I was going to be filled with all the strength and power to overcome sin, and yet I still struggle with it. You know, from time to time, I fall into particular sins I thought I'd be over with by now. We have an advocate if and when we sin. Read the verse again. What is it that we have? You could spend the rest of the week just reflecting on this one verse. What is it that we have? The word that John gives us is that our case before the Father is not going to be pled by our own good works outweighing our sinful works. If you've ever seen uh, 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 some of the court buildings, you'll see you know, blind lady justice with a scale in one hand and a sword in the other and the scale weighs one side to the other. That is not the imagery and the picture that John demonstrates here in this first verse. Our case before the Father is not going to be settled by how well we have performed weighing the scale on one side, outweighing the other. Read the verse again. What do we have? We have an advocate. So a better question would really be, reflecting on this verse, who do we have? Who do we have? An advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you see what John is appealing to for these Christians? Does he say that Christians are to appeal to their own righteousness or their own piety to prove to God that they are in good standing with him? Does he say that the Christian is to point to their good works outweighing their sinful works, which then means that God is transactionally obligated to give them a restored relationship? No. In this verse, it's as if the apostle places his hand delicately and gently on the chin of the downcast Christian to lift their face up to look at Jesus Christ, the righteous. John, this elder in the church, this, this uh, elderly father for the churches, points to the fact that before the heavenly father, Christians have an advocate. Someone who stands for them. Someone who stands outside of them. Someone who will plead the sinner's case. If I asked you again, who is this advocate? There should be no doubt now, it is Jesus Christ. 
John, John's point in this passage is that the one who has acted righteously, Jesus, stands in God's presence to plead the case of those who have acted unrighteously. That's us. None of us can boast before the Lord and say, God, look at all that I've done for you. Look at how I have lived for you. Look at all that I have accomplished in your name. No. John is clear. What we have is not a heaping pile or a mountain of good works that we can point to and say, see God, I really did it. No. We have an advocate that stands before us who pleads our case on our behalf. And what does our advocate appeal to? He doesn't just stand before the Father and say, look, Father, can't you see those knuckleheads are really trying? I mean, they're just giving it their best. How about we just cut them a little bit of slack? No. He appeals to his own righteousness. He doesn't appeal to the Father saying, well, God, look at what they've done. They've really done their best. They gave it their all. Let's go ahead and let them in. He stands before the Father appealing to his own righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Many of you have this verse memorized. Paul says, For our sake he made him, the Father made the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that is good news. That is good, good news that we can rest on. Because if the work to stand before the Lord in a proper standing and a proper relationship was all up to us, we, we, we wouldn't stand. We would crumble. It is a terrifying hour for the sinner to stand before the throne room of God in his own righteousness. But what do we have? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An old commentator wrote, the clients are guilty Their innocence and legal righteousness cannot be pleaded. It is the advocate's own righteousness that he must plead for the criminals. That is us. We are the criminals. We need someone to plead for us. And that is exactly what we have in the person and work of Jesus. But friends, have you considered what kind of an advocate we have? John describes him as Jesus Christ the righteous. Maybe you remember many, many months ago when Pastor Josh was in Hebrews chapter 7. This would be a helpful passage for you to reflect on this week or maybe even at Life Group later on today. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 28, which honestly is going to be much better for you to consider than whether or not you're going to spot the, uh, the infamous Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl today. Good news for you to reflect on. Verse 23, Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, being Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Y'all should probably highlight that. Jesus is not kicking back in his lazy boy in heaven saying, all right, I I did my work and I'm living my heavenly golden years now. No, he lives, always lives to make intercession for them. He is advocating for Christians right now. Let me get back to the word of God here. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted from the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Church, if you feel discouraged, disappointed, struggling with assurance, wondering, why can I just not be a stronger, more mature Christian? I've been a Christian for so long, and I just can't seem to overcome this. Friend, you have good news. You have good news that the Son of God always intercedes for you, and He is your advocate before the Father, and you have already received the promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that the work that He has begun in you, He is not waiting for you to complete it. He is going to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus, and you can take that check and cash that at the bank. That promise will not go void. That promise will not come back to you rejected. Why? Because you have an advocate with the Father, one who is an expert at keeping his word, who always keeps his promises. Friends, the fact that we have one who stands before the Father, who pleads our case, not based on what we've done, but based on all that he has accomplished, this is good news. It is good news. It is the best news that you can think about today. It is better news than you will receive tomorrow. I really hope that y'all get that job that you want and you're able to clear that check that you need to get cleared and you get that house that you really want to. But you know what's better news than all of those things? That Jesus Christ stands for you. He stands for his church. He will give to his church all that they need to walk in the light as he is in the light and he will present you to himself Without blemish or spot or wrinkle or stain, you will stand before him blameless and holy because of him. This is good news. This reminder from the apostle that we have an advocate with the Father is good news. Because if Christianity taught that you and I are basically okay, you know, we've got some rough edges that we need to kind of smooth out. Or that uh, to have a right standing with God, we just need to perform a little better. We just need to be better citizens and better churchgoers and better neighbors or, 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 you know, or the like. It, or that we could just spiritually discipline ourselves into a right standing with the Lord. Then you know what Christianity would be? It'd be bad news. Because you just can't do enough. You cannot pray enough. You cannot read your Bible well enough. You cannot heap up enough good works to stand before the Lord in a proper right standing. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's Sisyphus' stone. You keep rolling it up, but it just keeps rolling back downhill. It's never-ending. The reason why is because we do not have the strength within ourselves to demonstrate to the Lord that our sin can be and should be wiped clean. Jesus Christ, who lived alone, 
who alone lived a perfect life of perfect love and obedience to the Father, who died on the cross as our substitute to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin, who rose from the grave three days later, who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, this glorious Savior that we exult in and proclaim to the world, he stands as our wonderful advocate. The Christian gospel, dear brothers and sisters, is the kind of good news that gives rest to weary souls. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn from me and take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The Christian gospel is the kind of good news that says you need to look outside of yourselves if you want to experience the forgiveness of your sins and salvation. It's the kind of good news that says that salvation has come, but that salvation is outside of you. It's alien to you. This salvation does not come from within you, like some of these false teachers were claiming. But friends, just practically speaking, I'm talking about Monday at 12.15 in the afternoon. Do you need help remembering this good news of Jesus' substitutionary death and glorious resurrection? Because I certainly do. And 12.15 tomorrow afternoon is coming, and I'm going to need help to remember the gospel. And by reminding his little children that they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, That's exactly what John is doing. He is reminding the church of the good news of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and what he is presently accomplishing in heaven as an advocate who intercedes for us. If anyone does sin, that's all of us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if you think that's where the good news ends, hang on, buckle up, because there's still more good news. Question number three. In verse 2, what has he done? John goes on to say, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You might look at this verse and you know, mispronounce the, the big P word, propitiation. Say it with me, propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. But what does this mean? Well, John's listeners, when hearing this term used of Christ, what they would have seen is not a glorious golden throne room where a king sits with his crown, ruling with an iron rod over a land of peace and meadows and flowers. The image that would have come to their minds is that of a bloody sacrifice. Propitiation, as one uh, uh, teacher uh, said, means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. And so John's listeners would have reflected and remembered the propitiatory gifts of the Old Testament. Some of you are reading through the Bible this year, uh, and if you've fallen behind, there's grace for you. But you've probably come through some of those Old Testament animal sacrifices that were designed to take away the sins of the people as a substitute Propitiation means the avert, uh, averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. It uh, refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote a really helpful, uh, tiny little brief article 
on this subject of propitiation, but he goes on to describe propitiation uh, is used in the New Testament to describe the pacifying, placating, or appeasing of God's wrath. Christ's death not only removed the moral stain of sin, it also removed the personal offense of sin. So there are four specific things to remember with Jesus' work as the propitiation of our sins. If we don't understand what the work entails, we're not going to understand the work that he has accomplished. Propitiation entails four specific elements. They should be up on the screen for you. Number one, an offense, a crime or sin which incurs a penalty. Number two, an offended person whose anger needs to be appeased. So, an offense, an offended person. Number three, an offending person who needs to be pardoned and accepted. Number four, a sacrifice of sufficient value to appease the offended person. So, an offense has to be made. An offended person whose offense has, who's been offended, the offended person, there must be an offending person who commits the offense, and then a sacrifice of sufficient value must be made to appease the offended person. The Apostle John is not the only one who holds to the idea of propitiation. This isn't just some novel concept that John just kind of whipped up in his mind thinking that, all right, if I, if I say this thing, that's really going to get the church to move. No, no, no. Look at Romans chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 3, Paul says the very same thing. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 21. There's, there's one particular verse in Romans 3 that I think like all of us church-going Christians have understood very well. And you can probably nod your head when I, when I repeat this familiar verse. But I'm going to start in verse 21. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did y'all catch what Paul said here? There's something stunning about Jesus Christ being our propitiation in John chapter 2, verse 2, that Paul echoes in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 25 again. Paul says, Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God himself provides the sacrifice. Salvation in Christianity does not teach that a righteous creator God was just sitting around for his rebellious creatures to go find a sufficient sacrifice and then come and then provide it to him. 
Christianity teaches that our perfectly righteous creator God provides the sufficient sacrifice himself. If it were up to us, we would never be able to provide what is necessary to appease his wrath. He does the work himself. He put Christ Jesus forward. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. He himself provided the sacrifice. If you are ever tempted to boast that you are in proper standing with God, ask yourself, how did I get here? How were my sins ever paid for? How is it that I now have a proper standing with God where God now says, you are no longer a servant, but you are my friend? It is because God himself provided the sacrifice in your place. In Genesis 22, maybe you read this recently in the last couple of weeks, Abraham confidently asserted, as he's about to lay his son down to be executed, to be sacrificed, which had to have done a number on Isaac, he lays him down and he confidently asserts that the Lord himself would provide the necessary sacrifice. And what did the Lord do? He did just that. John says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, so quick question as we read this passage. What then is the extent of this propitiation? Right. So John uses his language. So it's not just our propitiation, but it's, uh, it's also for the sins of the whole world. And this leads to all kinds of theological debate and discussion. Might I encourage you to stay off the internet when you're engaging in this subject and have an actual conversation with a real Christian who you can see in person and you're reminded that they're actually a human being made in the image of God and they deserve your kindness and respect and should be treated with dignity and honor and shouldn't be torn down because they don't hold the same exact uh, perspective and, and idea idea as you, uh, you kind of lose that on the internet. So that's just me being an older man getting kind of cranky with the internet. But plenty of discussion on this idea of, well, what does it mean that Jesus is our propitiation, but he's also the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Well, the first option, John could mean when he says our sins, meaning the elect, right? Those who the Lord has chosen before the foundations of the world, the elect who would receive faith and uh, would trust in Christ, and then the sins of the whole world, John might mean, well, meaning the non-elect, everybody else, those who would not uh, receive Christ and trust in him. Well, this is the least likely option because John is clear in, in other uh, places in the scriptures that forgiveness of sins is only possible if one receives Christ. So if you don't receive Christ, your sins have not been paid for. John says that elsewhere. There are two options that are more likely, and you're welcome to land on one side or the other, but I think, along with other commentators, that when John refers to our sins, he's referring to Jewish Christians. And when he's referring to the sins of the whole world, I think it makes the most sense that he's referring to Gentile Christians. I think that's the strongest case. I've seen other commentators make the same argument. If you choose to hold to a different position, that's okay. Please remember, I am a human being. So if you want to have a conversation with me, can you please be kind about it? But there's another option that, that might also be arguably a, a, a helpful position. He might mean that our sins is, re, is referring to the specific Christians he's writing to there in Asia Minor. And when he says sins of the whole world, he might be referring to believers outside of Asia Minor. 
That's possible too. Those two options are much stronger than the first one. right? But regardless, the point of these first two verses is this. That because of this gift of propitiation, Jesus Christ is our righteous advocate. He is our righteous advocate who turns away the wrath of God that was justly against us, and he doesn't do it under compulsion or as an obligation with no desire of his own. He does it wonderfully and freely, not pleading our innocence, but by presenting his own work on our behalf so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Friends, that is good, good news. That is good news that we get to rest in and be settled in and plant deep roots in that Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith and your trust in him, you have peace with God. You are forever justified. And as one of those previous songs we sang, or I'm sorry, uh, when, we, when we were reading scripture in John chapter 10, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That is good news for you to rest in. There's one more question we ought to consider. What do we do? Right, so we've spent a bulk of our time looking at these first two verses. What do we need? What do we have? Uh, uh, what has he done? Now, what do we do? And interestingly, uh, in, in my pastoral experience, in my Christian experience, this is the question that Christians often ask all the time. All right, pastor, I get what you're saying. I got the theology. I got the doctrinal download in my mind. But what, what am I supposed to do? Tell me what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. Well, how do I live this out? Where's the practical application? All right, John gets real practical. He, he's he's going to get very practical here. Verses 3 to 6, he goes, he goes on to say, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right. So John seems to have a particular concern to confirm the true Christian. How do you know that you're in God? How do you know that you know God? He gives the specific guidelines here in these brief verses. But before we jump into that, notice John's language. He says, And by this we know, present tense, that we have come to know. That's the perfect tense. So he's saying, look, we know that we have come to know if we keep his commandments. All right. John's language is pointing to a time in the past when we came to know him. The Bible would call that conversion. We came to know God at a specific point. You might not remember the day and the time or the exact specific location. That's not really the point. John is saying we can know and we do know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He's concerned with confirming the true Christian as he is with exposing the false. Right? John goes on to say later in this same letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, uh, regarding the commandments of God, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You may feel that this Christian walk is heavy, you've been discouraged, you're weary, you're trying your best, and it just seems really burdensome. 
But John says his commandments are not burdensome. Maybe your experience and what the scriptures teach to and reveal to be true, maybe there's a disconnect there. Keeping God's commands is not the condition for you to come to know God. It is not the condition for you to remain knowing God. Keeping his commands is the consequence of you having come to know God already. If you have come to know him, you will want to keep his commands. In verse 4, John goes on to say that those who claim to know God, but they have a complete and utter disregard for his word, uh, for, the, uh, for obeying his commands, their claims to know God is suspect, right? So that means that if you claim that I know God and I love God and I'm a Christian, but I'm embezzling money and I'm stealing money and I'm, 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 I'm lying left and right and I'm engaging in all kinds of behaviors that the scriptures specifically condemn, and you want to say, oh, no, but I'm still a Christian. Well, you... you your walk does not match your talk. Right? If, if I were to profess to you, I am a financial genius, and if you believe every word I say, I will make you a millionaire tomorrow, and I am dead broke, I'm straddled in debt, and I am dying from how much financial burden I'm carrying, there's no reason to believe that I'm actually what I say I am. If the walk does not match the talk, it's going to be kind of suspect. Right? Especially when... The sin is so explicit when it's so just in your face. This would not appear to uh, 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 reflect one who proclaims to be walking in holiness. John says this would be suspect. Verse 5, he goes on to say, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. He's exposing the false. He's confirming the true. So what does John mean when he says uh, the love of God? Is he talking about God's love for us? Is he talking about us loving like God? I I think it's more uh, appropriate to understand that the love of God that John's referring to probably means our love for God. So the proof of love is loyalty to God, obedience. Jesus explicitly says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He makes the test very clear. Listen, if you're going to love me, you're going to do what I'm telling you to do. This isn't a debate. Love with God is not a democracy. God makes it very clear. If you love me, you're going to do what I'm telling you to do. And the Lord goes on to say, And his commandments are not burdensome. So again, he makes good news even better. John goes on in uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, the question then is, how do we walk in the same way in which he walked? Well, you're probably not going to sell your home and put on some sandals that show your toes and walk around the city with some tattered robes and not have a pillow to sleep on, right? You're not literally walking like Jesus, right? You're not literally doing that. Okay, so what is John referring to? True Christians are to walk in holiness because Jesus Christ has already made them holy. He has already consecrated his people for himself. 
having experienced the new birth and having been united to Christ by faith, having the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, we can say that it is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. And if we claim to abide in him, our lives of faith ought to reflect the person who is the object of our faith. So, I still haven't answered the question for you. How are you to walk? What are you to do? How are you to walk in this holiness that we are called to walk? Well, numerous books have been written on the subject. Numerous articles are pumped out of uh, Christian ministries on a literally daily basis. Podcasts galore are all over the place. You can literally find the exact answer to the question that I'm proposing, how do we walk in holiness, with your thumbs right now. But before we jump into a personal obedience improvement project, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. When you read Romans 6 in context, there's something incredible that's happening here. Paul, in uh, the book of Romans, uh, an incredible exposition of, of, of Christian theology and doctrine and practice. But in Romans chapter 6, something interesting happens. If you were to cut out Romans 6 and 7 and read Romans 1 through 5 and just jump to Romans chapter 8, the logic and the flow, it's as if it never breaks. It's completely linear. But in Romans chapter 6 and 7, he seems to go off on a bit of a rabbit trail, a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail, if you will. Because as he's been explaining the imputed righteousness of Jesus on his people, Paul seems to anticipate the objection to justification by faith. So if you've ever done a little bit of reading in church history, then you'll know that the Roman Catholic Church particularly opposed Luther by saying, look, if you try to explain and expound justification by faith alone, then all these church-going Christians, they're just going to live however the heck they want to. And Luther refuted that because Paul refuted that. And in Romans chapter 6, he asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to sin Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For a a group of Baptists, sometimes that, you know, we we don't really talk about baptism much, except for that one time that someone gets baptized and then we just kind of forget it. Like that was the the thing that happened and now we're just going to go on trying to live the Christian life. Keep, keep reading, though. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do, do, do you see Paul's instructions here? Paul instructs the church to remember their baptism and what their baptism signifies, what Christ himself has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. So what is Paul saying the key to our walking in holiness is? It is faith and trust in Christ. It is to look to Jesus, to remember what Jesus has done. And what's a simple way that you can do that? Your baptism. Reflect on your baptism. You were buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. The Christian life is summarized in the ordinance. Paul goes on. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul's speaking about Christ here. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, those are the first 11 verses. I'm going to read a couple more verses for you here in just a moment. But do you notice what Paul is doing? He's explaining how it is impossible for Christians who have uh, uh, trusted in Christ to just give themselves over to sin and to remain in it. How can we, who have died to sin, live in it? We can't. Those who trust in the truth that Christ has died to sin, verse 10, that is our death to sin. Verse 2, when he died, we died. When he was crucified and buried, we were crucified and buried. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We are dead to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 2, because he is dead to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. Do you see the, the inextricable link between our death to sin and his death to sin? He committed no sin, but our sin was imputed to him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul goes on in Romans 6. We are therefore no longer enslaved to sin or need to obey its orders. The key to sanctification is not you gritting your teeth, trying a little harder to impress God with your abilities. The key to sanctification is faith in Jesus Christ. To look to him to see all that he has accomplished. He lived for you. He died for you. Because he has died, you have died. When he was crucified, you were crucified. When he was raised, although his resurrection was in the past and ours is, is, is in the future, it's as if our resurrection has already happened based on Jesus' resurrection. Do you see this picture that Paul is painting? He hasn't even gone to the point of telling you, this is what you need to do now. He is reminding us of what Christ has accomplished. These truths in Romans chapter 6 is the key to sanctification by faith. Paul is not saying that you have no action to take. Paul is not saying, all right, now that you're in Christ, go ahead and live however you want. He's not saying that. Because in verses 12 and following, he says, let me get back to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 12, Paul goes on. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you see what he's saying? You died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You will be raised with Christ. And you have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, just as he walks now. These are the truths of sanctification by faith. This is how you grow in holiness. is by looking to Jesus. By looking to his word. By leaning into his spirit. By trusting in the promises God has already made. By faith. 
The, tr- the, the, the faith in Christ. Trust that he died and rose for us so that we have died with him, died in him and will be raised in him. This is what leads us to grow in holiness. So that question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul draws that question to a conclusion in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How do you grow in holiness? By considering yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Some of y'all might have uh, those older translations, and uh, the word that you might be seeing there says reckon. That's a good word. You must reckon yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God, just as we know that God reckons us to be righteous in Christ in our justification. So we reckon ourselves to be, able, to be alive in Christ Jesus and able to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So to grow in holiness, we look to Christ. We consider ourselves dead to sin, as he is dead to sin, and alive to God as he is alive and he has raised us to walk in newness of life. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. We have been set free. Sin will no longer have dominion over us. Verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 22, Paul says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Friends, it is only after we have absorbed these truths and truly believe them can we heed the exhortation for us to grow in holiness. Romans 6, 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So how do we grow in holiness? How do we walk in the same way in which he walked as the Apostle John exhorts the churches there in Asia Minor and us today? It is not by our own strength. It's not by spiritually beating ourselves into submission. The key to sanctification, the key to walking in the same way in which he walked is to remember Jesus Christ and to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in him. Friends, if you need good news to reflect upon and celebrate today, Let us praise the Lord that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this good news that we have received. That you have set us free from the bondage of sin and you have made us alive in Christ. Father, by your spirit, according to your word, help us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive in God. Lord, we do this not to boast in ourselves and our own abilities, but Lord, we do this in response to what you have done for us, in in response as obedience and worship to you, and in response of love. Father, we ask that you would help us to look to Christ, to walk in the same way in which he walked, to walk in the light, to walk in holiness, to resist temptation and turn from sin, and to trust in the Lord. Lord, give us a genuine desire to obey you because you have set us free and you have made us alive. And we we, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.